SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yama, welcome to NITV Radio. Coming up in your program this Monday, the 6th of March, we look back at the resumption last week of the inquest into the death of Walpin man Kumanjai Walker. Also last week marked one year since floods devastated Lismore and its community. In the program, we'll hear how one year on, many are still grieving their losses, recovery work is still underway, and the Koori Mail, which played a major role in relief and recovery efforts, is now marking the milestone with ambitious plans for the Lismore community and surrounding areas. Also on NITV Radio today, we'll get to meet Erica Urell, owner of Dreamtime Artistry. Dreamtime Artistry offers authentic indigenous arts, crafts and educational services to the Northern Rivers region in New South Wales. All these stories and more coming to you after the latest news on NITV Radio, broadcasting from NAM on the Colin Nation this Monday afternoon. Bertrand Tungandami here. I'm Bertrand Tungandami. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy erected outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. In this bulletin, traditional owners bring their case against a nuclear waste dump to federal court. Mortgage holders brace for yet another interest rate rise this week. And a global treaty to protect the world's oceans has been finalized. Traditional owners are bringing their case against the construction of a nuclear waste dump to federal court. The Bangala Determination Aboriginal Corporation are trying to prevent the construction of a proposed dump at Napandi on South Australia's Al Peninsula. The group first launched their action in 2021, seeking to quash a ministerial declaration from the former coalition government. They argue they were denied the right to participate in a community ballot to gauge local support for the site because many did not live in the Kimba council area. The corporation said the former government also refused access to the land to undertake a proper heritage survey and try to remove their right to a judicial review. A civics education campaign will roll out across the country ahead of the upcoming vote on Indigenous Voice to Parliament. The government has put in place regulations for a $9.5 million public education campaign on the voice referendum, which is due to take place between October and December this year. 
It aims to inform, to inform voters of the referendum process and what is proposed according to an explanatory note attached to the new rules. The campaign will run separate to the measures by the Australian Electoral Commission on the ballot process. The statement also noted that there would be specific content for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and linguistically diverse audiences. Mortgage holders are anticipating yet another interest rate rise this week, which would be the 10th by the Reserve Bank in a row. The central bank is tipped to deliver another 25 basis point rise after communications following the February decision suggested the bank was growing impatient with high inflation. This will take the cash rate from 3.35% to 3.6% when the board meets on Tuesday. Tasmanian Senator Jackie Lambie told Channel 9 many people in her electorate are fearful of entering a recession. Um, you can see people out there, mate, they are tightening their belt. You know, I'm going to functions, uh, they're expecting big people, they're expecting a lot more people to show up at functions that they're just not showing up, mate. And yeah. I told them six months ago to tighten your belts and that's exactly what many people are doing. You can run around these regional rural, rural and regional areas, mate, and those shops up for lease. They're not sitting there for a month now, they're still up for lease. Months on end. That's where we're heading into. Uh, it's pretty scary what's, what uh, the next six months is going to look like. A majority of voters approved the government's superannuation tax plan, but Labor and Prime Minister Anthony Albanese have lost some favour from the public. That's according to the latest news poll conducted by The Australian, which found almost two-thirds of voters support Treasurer Jim Chalmers' plan to double the concessional tax rate for super balance over $3 million in 2025. Of those polled, 64% approved compared to 29% who did not. A total of 80% of Labour voters approved of the plan, but 54% of coalition voters also supported it. This despite opposition leader Peter Dutton vowing to repeal it if the coalition wins the next election. The poll of more than 1,500 voters conducted between March 1 and March 4 shows the coalition's primary vote lifting a point to 35%, while Labour dropped a point to 37%. The poll shows Mr Albanese's approval ratings have fallen to their lowest level since the election, with his satisfaction score dropping to 55%, seven points down on his post-election high of 62%. Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek has praised the work of organisations who support survivors of domestic and sexual violence. This comes as a new book revealed that Minister Plibersek's daughter Anna confronted trauma as a result of an abusive relationship. The minister praised the work of organisations like the Survivor Hub, which works with those impacted by sexual assault. Ms. Plibersek told Channel 7 it was important to share her daughter's story because it is a serious issue affecting Australian women. Um, the really important thing to say is that this is a story that touches so many Australian families. We know the statistics about one in five Australian women over the age of 15 has experienced sexual violence and uh, I think by um, telling Anna's story and a little bit about the impact it had on our family, I hope that uh, others will, um, mm. will, will see that there's support available.
Independent Senator David Pocock says the government's safeguard mechanism for emissions must be reformed. New modelling has revealed the government's emissions budget must be fine-tuned because new coal and gas companies are expected to account for a large share of the budget. Senator Pocock said the safeguard mechanism is necessary because having a price on carbon doesn't seem to be a political option in Australia. But he said its features must be improved. In its current form, I've got huge reservations. And we saw this morning more modelling coming out by Reputex, who came up with the 43% that Labor took to the election, saying that there is a real risk that new fossil fuel projects could blow the budget. The, the way it's currently set up, you know, cement, aluminium, steel are lumped in with potentially new fossil fuel projects. I don't think that's fair or right. So I think there's, there's definitely some work to do on this and I'll, I'll continue those discussions. Marine conservation experts are hailing a new United Nations treaty to protect the high seas. More than 100 countries have signed the agreement which looks to reverse marine biodiversity losses and ensure sustainable development. The treaty is seen as a crucial component in global efforts to bring 30% of the world's land and sea under protection by the end of the decade. Ocean expert from Pure Charitable Trust's Nicola Clark says the high seas are critical because they make up two-thirds of our ocean and cover almost half of the surface of the planet. I mean, this is huge. This is um, really, I think, a, a keystone agreement um, if, if we're going to try and protect 30% of the ocean. So uh, this agreement covers the high seas, areas beyond national jurisdiction. Um, and before, we didn't really have a clear pathway of protecting these areas, these international waters. It gives us the, the legal framework that we can use to establish protected areas in the high seas. Ukrainian forces defending Bakhmut are facing increasingly strong pressure from Russian forces. Ukraine is reinforcing the area with elite units, while regular Russian army and forces of the private military Wagner Group have made further advances into Bakhmut's northern suburbs. The Ukraine Armed Forces General Staff said in a Facebook post late on Sunday that Russian troops were trying but failing to surround Bakhmut and that defenders had repelled numerous attacks. International security expert Professor John Blacksland told Channel 9 it appears more likely that Ukraine will be forced to retreat from the city as Russian forces continue to push west. Proudly wearing their traditional ornate skirts, indigenous Bolivian women participated in a bike race through the high-altitude streets of El Alto on Sunday. The indigenous women, known as Cholitas, swapped out helmets, shoes or professional lycra kits for traditional skirts called polleras. Resa Rosa Pomalimachi, who arrived in fourth place, described the personal significance of wearing her pollera. I participated wearing pollera because my mum wore polleras. She died two years ago and I want to honour her because she wore polleras. By wearing a pollera, I feel proud because I am honouring my mother. The race was part of the celebrations to mark the 38th anniversary of the foundation, the foundation of El Alto. 
There has been a significant discovery during a quest to learn more about the identity of an unnamed land painter from the early 20th century. Senior Danek traditional owner Kenneth Mangiru discovered artist Old Harry was his great-grandfather during his research, with the team looking to the distinctive artistic style of a series of bark paintings. The creator of the artworks, including one of a large crocodile, had been a mystery for nearly a century. After sifting through various notebooks and letters associated with the bark paintings, lead professor Paul Tecon realized that Old Harry was a Majumbu who also made rock art paintings. Mr. Mangiro, who discovered he was the artist's relative, said it was emotional to visit the painting on the Jimoban rock shelter. Some of the earliest bark paintings collected from the region date back to the 1830s. And to sport, a new NRL team have proven their stride after a dazzling win over the Sydney Roasters' side. The Dolphins secured a 28-18 victory over the error-ridden Sydney team with back rower Felice Kaufusi unveiling a superb defensive play that earned him man of the match. The crowd of more than 32,000 at Suncorp Stadium was expectant before kickoff, but few would have predicted the upset that unfolded. They went try for try with their more fancied opponents to go to halftime at 12 all before putting the foot down. The Roosters only had themselves to blame for their demise after a suite of uncharacteristic errors, though fortune was also against them with various accidents throughout the first half. And now having a look at the weather around the country this Monday, Broome, partly cloudy 31, Perth, sunny 29, Adelaide, a shower 223, Melbourne, partly cloudy 24, Hobart, a shower 222, Albury Wodonga, sunny day 22, Canberra, mostly sunny 29, Wollongong, much the same 36, Sydney, sunny 38, Newcastle, similar conditions 37, Brisbane, mostly sunny 31, Townsville, mostly cloudy 27, Keynes, rain 28, Alice Springs, sunny day 33, Darwin, showers and a possible storm 31 degrees, and the Torres Strait Islands, a mostly cloudy day, and a top of 29 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. TV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. Coming up next on NITV Radio, it's been one year since devastating floods ravaged uh, Lismo. Today, we look back at the situation on the ground one year after the event. We also explore new plans by the Kuri Mail. The National Indigenous newspaper played a significant role in relief and recovery efforts. Well, one year on publication has more ambitious plans to help the local community. Also on NITV Radio, we'll meet Erica Urell, owner of Dreamtime Artistry, a website that specializes in indigenous arts and crafts and education. But our first story takes us to Alice Springs Coroner's Court with the inquest into the death of Walperiman Kumanjai Walker. <laughs> We 
With the inquest into Kumanjai Walker's death resuming last week, Northern Territory Deputy Police Commissioner has defended the use of guns by officers despite concerns raised by World Peary community. Also, an open letter written by Constable Zakari Rolf before he left the country could be investigated for contempt of court. Guy McLean was in Alice Springs uh, last week for the resumption of the colonial, coronial inquest into the death of uh, Kumanjai Walker, who was shot and killed by Constable Rolf during a Bangor arrest in 2019. The inquest resumed just days after Constable Rolf released a 2,500 word letter describing himself as a good cop who only tried to help people while justifying racist text messages he sent to colleagues and also dismissing this inquest as biased and all about him. Lawyers for the Walker family and NT Police said Constable Rolf's letter and subsequent media reports were part of a campaign to destabilise and denigrate the police force and the inquest. They urged the coroner to refer these matters to the Director of Public Prosecutions or the Attorney-General to investigate whether contempt proceedings should be brought against any individual or organisation. Alice Springs independent politician Robin Lambley was criticised for sharing the letter and articles on a Facebook page supporting Zachary Rolfe. Constable Rolfe's mother, who is a Canberra lawyer, also posted a comment supporting her son, a decision the coroner has also been asked to consider. Lawyer for NT Police Dr Ian Freckleton KC said Constable Rolfe's letter contained slurs and lies and were part of a campaign that could be an attempt to pervert the course of justice. It is a gross and blatant attempt to interfere with your inquest. Dr Freckleton told the coroner Constable Rolfe committed four serious breaches of discipline for doing media interviews during and after a Supreme Court trial last year where he was acquitted of the murder of Kumanjai Walker. Dr Freckleton said the letter is the latest breach. He appears to think that he can write or say anything, no matter how hurtful, in some kind of campaign of denigration and destabilisation. Constable Rolfe must provide a response in seven days and a robust consequence will follow. The inquest also heard from senior elders from the Walpuri community of La Jamanu, about 600 kilometres north of Uendamu, where Kumanjai Walker was shot and killed. They said police in their community no longer carry firearms on general patrols. They said relationships between police and the community were now very good. Guy McLean, NITV News. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. Still last week, the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales marked one year since it experienced the worst floods in its history. In Lismore and nearby communities, hundreds of homes, farms and businesses were destroyed. While many are still displaced following the record-breaking event, others continue to mourn the loss of loved ones. Stefan Ambrusta reports. Celebrating the life of one of the five victims of the Lismore flood, Stuart Bock was swept away while trying to help others. His beloved hat recovered from the debris a week later. He was just such a free spirit and he had a heart of gold. Just miss him. Miss him like in ways that I, I don't even really understand. As record flooding swamped Lismore and the Northern Rivers region, overwhelming emergency services, an army of locals took to the water. They came to be known as the Tinny Army. Oh, mate, heroes. Heroes. They like, saved lives. 
didn't rescue people, they saved lives. Greg and Vicky were rescued as rising waters engulfed their South Lismore home. Twelve months later, they're still living in a caravan on their own property. Thousands are still in temporary accommodation, some in what are known as pod villages. I don't know what's going to happen with my friend, I really don't know. A lot of people still haven't got anywhere to go, I think I'm very lucky. Are we doing alright? Yeah. yeah I think Reconstruction is still underway, but progress is slow. A lot of people still have a very long way to go. The government response is slow, and so that's really challenging for people that are trying to get on with their lives. The heart of Lismore was left utterly devastated. The slow pace of recovery, a source of anger for some. Lismore's mayor defending the efforts of authorities. You've got to understand the scale and the size of the event that we've just lived through. Uh, you know, our state governments literally had to write re- legislation to be able to offer buybacks to residents. Of the more than 3,000 houses destroyed or damaged, only 25 buyback offers have been made so far. The New South Wales government is expected to make 250 more by the end of April. Stefan Armbruster, NITV News. NITV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. And we stay in Lismore with a one year on from uh, the floods. The Koori Mail has grand plans. Modern on the emergency response centre they created, the paper are planning to develop a space where the Lismore community can continue coming together. Tanisha Williams reports. Like many other homes and businesses, the Koori Mail was inundated with water during the Northern Rivers floods. As with any kind of traumatic event, you don't really move on. You're always going to grieve um, that experience. So um, I think that will be ongoing. After the floods, staff at the paper put down their pens and picked up pots and pans, setting up the Koori Kitchen, a vital part of the relief effort for mob in the region. And you can still see the, the watermark there. So this is how far the water came up here on the second level. In the newspaper's new office, Hanging Proudly is the first edition published after the floods. We missed three editions, unfortunately. First time in the history of the Koori Mail that we'd not printed a newspaper. The Koori Mail now owns the entire building, with plans to develop a community centre and a cafe in their old office space downstairs. And I know that I always joke about it, but um, I reckon this will be the blackest building on the block. And we certainly will be, you know, proud of that. And we can't wait to share all the updates with everyone because it's been a long, a long, hard 12 months. The Koori Mail has been published from here in Lismore for more than three decades. And despite the impact of the floods, they've come back stronger than ever. We're still here surviving and thriving Uh, you know, some 230-odd years later since colonisation, 12 months later since this natural disaster impacted our Bundjalung region. Continuing to work for the community in the good times and the bad. Tanisha Williams, NITV News. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Welcome back. I'm Bertrand Tungandami and you're listening to NITV Radio coming to you from Nam on the Kulin Nation this Monday afternoon. 
Coming up next, a conversation with uh, Erica Yoel, owner of uh, Dreamtime Artistry. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Let's talk about art. Dreamtime Artistry is an authentic Indigenous-owned and run business. Dreamtime Artistry supplies unique Indigenous Australian products and supports local Aboriginal artists. And we are talking to the owner, Erika Urel, the owner of Dreamtime Artistry. Erika is a traditional custodian from the Yungambe language region of the Gold Coast, and she is a descendant from Volumbin Mount Warning. And she's joining us. Hello, Erika. Good afternoon, Jingri. Jingri, can you please tell us a little bit more about yourself and perhaps your daughters, because they're running the business with you, isn't it? Um, yes, they're involved in the business. I'm um, born and bred on the Gold Coast. I have um, strong community ties to the Gold Coast. I'm a traditional owner from this region um, and also Wollumbun, as you mentioned. It's on my mum's side, so we go back very many generations, uh, particularly via women, as we're strong Indigenous women. So I've lived on the Gold Coast and I apologise, my dog is behind me barking. I know this place very well. I know community very well. Um, my girls um, sing in the Yukonbe Youth Choir as, as well as um, one paints for our shop, creates um, beautiful Indigenous artwork. And the other one, she's a very big supporter of, um, through the social media side of things and also helps um, share in the Welcome to Countries and sings as well for us. Hmm. That's beautiful. And your artists and suppliers have been operating for over 30 years and you're continuing the journey. So can you tell us a little bit more about the beginnings of Dreamtime Artistry? Well, Dreamtime Artistry started from possibly one didgeridoo a number of years ago and then it evolved to supporting young Indigenous artists. I work as an um, Indigenous support officer at a local high school, so I could see where their stories were getting lost because of various pressures from whether family, school, social issues and um, the same with my girls. So I wanted to ensure that there was a space for them all to tell their stories no matter how they wanted to do that. Yeah, so one didgeridoo and then on to supporting young Indigenous artists. We have um, some established artists which uh, have been with us for a while and I like to think that possibly they will mentor some of our younger artists coming through. I'm always on the lookout for young Indigenous artists so we can help, you know, sell their their art but also allow them to, for them to realise that there is a space for them and a place for their stories and they're important that they need to continue doing that. Mm-hmm. So how does it all work? What happens is um, we are like a retail shop and also an online side as well as doing the markets. We also reach out to the corporate area and various other um, places, community events and what you call it, community corporations. So what happens is when we're at markets and we actually do a lot of networking and we talk to people and, um, you know, if somebody comes up and says, hey, I do some art and, you know, I'm Indigenous and I do art, then we, you know, have a chat to them and invite them down to the shop to have a look and to show us what they've got and then, you know, start selling it for them. Um, we also get a lot of referrals from community and also people ringing us up via the website. So the artists that we have and um, the young ones, we know them all, we know their stories. 
we know where they're from. The art that they supply is completely authentic and that's something we pride ourselves on. Um, mm. We know those artists, we know their stories, regardless whether they're from the Yukumar region, from the Bundjalung region, because the Gold Coast is very different. It has, hasn't got that real um, strong group of people. So there's Indigenous people from all over here mm-hmm. living in here. And I know you have so many, but can you maybe tell us at least a little bit of the stories of the people, of the artists? Okay, well, we have Isabella, who is my daughter. She's 18 and um, has just started to come into her own and is about to go to university to study. Anthony Cora is a local man from the Gold Coast. His family is well known on the Gold Coast. I know him through community events. I knew that he could paint, so I came in and asked him if he'd like to put some of his artwork up in the shop to sell, and it's been going really well for him. He also um, produces um, various workshops. Uh, has a dance troupe, so we help facilitate some um, events for him, which we do for other artists as well. I have a cousin who is a beautiful storyteller. We have various um, other people who can do Welcome to Countries for us. We have Lionel Phillips. He's an established artist on the Gold Coast. He's a Rajari man and he only paints his stories and his work is absolutely magnificent. Oh, and we've recently just brought on a couple of new artists as well. So we're always on the lookout for new artists. We have Rosa, who is a cultural knowledge holder from the Gamilaroi area. He has then um, shifted his art into silversmithing and produces some beautiful pendants and um, rings. Mm, um, Who else do we have? We have various ones. I'm just trying to think who they are. We ensure that artists, they're all different. So there is something for everyone within that space. And who are your customers? We have a variety of customers. Um, through our shop, we have people just walk off the street and come in and you know see something that's original and authentic and walk away with it. They come in and play a ditch and realise how amazing that instrument is. So they will buy one we as i said we provide products to um, shops throughout australia and we also have the online store so people can ring us up through online we have corporate who ring us up for gifts community people who need something special we have a variety of um, customers Hmm. and do you see there's like an increasing demand for indigenous art I think there's a, a demand for authentic Indigenous arts. Um, we pride ourselves, we're the only Indigenous-owned business that sells arts on the Gold Coast. There are other places, but they're not owned by traditional custodians. So I think people like that, the fact that we are, you know, we're authentic ourselves and that we know the artists and we can tell their stories and speak about them. A lot of other places can't do that. And, um, yeah, I think people just like the fact that these are unique pieces. Mm-hmm. And apart from exhibitions and selling the art, you're also hosting, and you mentioned it before, several workshops. Can you tell us, you know, about things that are coming up? We have a space within the shop where we do some workshops. So I do, I'm a weaver. So that's what else is in the shop, my weaving. I forgot about that. Um, so I do some workshops in the shop, the space down at Coolangatta. Um, they're advertised online. So if anyone wants to know when they're coming up, if you go onto Dreamtime Artistry, they're always posted. We are establishing a few more. My daughter does boomerang paintings for kids. So teaches them a little about the symbols of Indigenous culture, but also shows the kids how to put their stories out onto the um, boomerangs. The shop itself, the business Dreamtime Artistry, has only been operating for about 18 months to two years. 
but we're getting bigger and um, going broader afield. Sorry, my dogs are going off again. <laughs> That's um, okay. Mission is to support young and emerging artists. So they have that space so they can tell their stories. And as I said, I work in a high school, so I'm able to talk to a lot of high school kids and those who have a passion for art. I can then bring into the shop and get them to create pieces. And also through that space, I, I connect to other schools as well. So um, it's an exciting space. Every day is different. Um, we get to meet some beautiful people, particularly at the markets, who come in and just want to have a chat and tell their stories. They don't necessarily buy anything, but they tell their stories. And that, I think that's what part of our business is. It's not just selling products, but it's actually sharing our stories. Well, Erica, thank you so much for taking your time to talk to us on NITV Radio. That's a pleasure. And as I said, if you'd like to connect with us, do so, do so by Dreamtime Artistry. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. Welcome back. I'm Bertrand Tungandami and you're listening to NITV radio coming to you from NAM on the Cooling Nation this Monday afternoon. Well, before our next uh, story, I'd like to invite you to check out our website and check out uh, our stories because we publish stories on this website uh, that never make it uh, on uh, the airwaves. And also all the stories that you hear in our programs are published on this website, uh, sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. I particularly encourage you to check out uh, the stories about the ongoing Australian International Documentary Conference have deadly stories about deadly First Nations uh, film and documentary makers who are discussing at uh, the conference the importance of First Nations-led storytelling, especially in factual documentaries. I also encourage you to follow us on our social media platforms and, uh, the con- and continue the conversation, especially on uh, Facebook. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Now, people living with obesity are backing calls for more prevention and treatment measures to halt and reduce its uh, prevalence. It comes as a new global study warns more than half of the world's population will be living... will be... be will, living with obesity or obese... will be living with obesity or being overweight by 2035. The effect of obesity can also be intergenerational and are more likely to affect groups experiencing greater levels of social inequality, including Indigenous Australians, migrants, and those living in regional and rural Australia. Biwa Kwan reports. New data released by the World Obesity Federation projects 51% of the global population will be overweight or obese by 2035. That's a rise of 13% in 12 years. The increase will be the fastest among children globally and also in lower-income countries in Asia and Africa. The World Obesity Federation is urging all nations to implement an urgent action plan of prevention and treatment measures. Without this, it predicts the economic impact of the increased rate of obesity will be $6.38 trillion Australian dollars, about 3% of global GDP. Staying healthy is top of mind for Brene Smith, an Indigenous woman who lives in Dubbo in western New South Wales. 
She has three children and is an advocate of step challenges, marathons, and tough mudder events. Sharing her struggles with mental health and living with obesity with other mums in a local community. I'll do the mud run in Dubbo every year, and I struggle. And I tell myself I'm going to complete every obstacle. And mate, it's I come home bruised, and I I fractured my coccyx one coccyx one year, and still kept doing all the events. My doctor told me I was crazy, but I told myself that I wanted to do it. And I love seeing my kids' faces when I get back to the end, or when I struggle to climb over one of them big fences or something like that and then my you know it's my kids my kids are the ones who drive me to want to be better there is a lot of barriers out there and there's a lot of things out there that could help me stay stay a lot bigger than I want to be but I think if I just keep my head down and pushing through I can I can achieve it some of those barriers include battling mental health and the added health risks of chronic disease and lower life expectancy faced by indigenous australians particularly those who live in regional and rural Australia. The excess weight became a problem that came to a head in 2020 after the onset of the pandemic, when multiple crises combined. Having COVID, living in a shelter and supporting her son's recovery from being in a coma after a life-threatening motorbike accident. And like you go through a trauma of nearly losing your child and the last thing you want to think about is eating. So when you order something in, you might only be eating one meal a day and that one meal that you're eating isn't good for you and then you get to a point. My, I, I got to a point where I weighed myself and I was at 112 kilos and that was the biggest I'd ever been and I was mortified and I know there's other people out there that are obviously bigger and I don't want that to sound terrible but for me in that point I wasn't in my life. That's not what I wanted and I knew that I needed to better myself what turned it all around was wanting to be there for her children. With my weight, I was always aware of it and I wasn't happy with it. But when my kids started to acknowledge it and notice it, that's when it affected me the most because I was like, I want to be, I want to still be here and, you know, go play sport with my kids. Sydney GP Georgia Regas says like with many health issues, early intervention is the key. But unless patients are open to asking for help, many suffer in silence. It's an issue she's come across working with patients but also has researched as a study lead author on why people with obesity delay seeking health care. We firstly have this issue whereby people do not even recognise that they are living with obesity. Um, the second fact that came out of that study was that uh, people living with obesity tend to wait about nine years before they have that discussion with their healthcare professionals. So they try to manage their weight and more importantly the impact it has on their health on their own and as a doctor of over 20 years I can't think of a single other health condition where patients think that they need to do it on their own and this really speaks to obesity stigma. She says excess weight is related to many other health conditions including heart disease, type 2 diabetes and at least 13 forms of cancer. The effects can also be intergenerational and are more likely to affect groups experiencing greater levels of social inequality, including Indigenous Australians, migrants and those living in regional and rural Australia. What we're seeing is 
that those who are uh, primarily affected are, are the ones that are least likely to come forward to access help, either because where they're living, they don't have the resources available or they don't have private health insurance to be able to access uh, some of the more effective therapies that are currently not um, subsidised by the government or in the case of um, some therapies might be partially. Uh, and um, then there's also the cultural barriers where in some uh, cultural uh, environments, it's actually uh, considered noble or uh, fashionable or actually a sign of good health if a person is above a healthy weight because it means that you are wealthy or that you don't have disease. Dr Regas says while it can be a challenging conversation to have, GPs can play an important role in helping patients feel comfortable and seeking help. She's calling for more training support for GPs as well as the inclusion of treatments on the government-subsidised medicines list to help patients. In Australia, currently two-thirds of adults and a quarter of children are considered overweight or obese, according to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. The CEO of Research Australia, Nadia Levine, says it's concerning that Australia is in the top five countries in the OECD with the highest proportion of adults who are classified as overweight or obese. Almost 10% of the total burden of disease in Australia is due to overweight and obesity and it is the leading risk factor, um, you know, contributing to some pretty serious health outcomes. Uh, and from an OECD point of view, you're talking about uh, international figures. Um, again, we're saying that uh, treating diseases caused by obesity is going to cost an average, and this is an average, of just under 10% of countries' total healthcare spending. So there's, there's the monetary side of things, but more importantly is the other health impacts, uh, where you've got children who are living with with overweight and and obesity, and that trend is continuing and getting worse. Her group has analysed where gaps may exist in the research and funding to deliver on Australia's 2030 targets listed in the 10-year National Obesity Strategy launched last year. One target aims to reduce the prevalence of obesity in adults generally, and the other target seeks to see the rates decrease among children by 5%. She says achieving those goals will require looking at where the most impact can be made. What's the clearer picture of the true social, um, you know, economic, personal impacts of obesity? And that has to underpin future investment decisions, right? We know that obesity disproportionately impacts uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, um, people living in regional and remote communities, the called community, older adults. So intervention and prevention strategies have to be developed in partnership with these diverse groups, with consumers, and be able to develop appropriate interventions, preventions, treatments. Brene Smith is well aware of the higher risk of chronic disease and lower life expectancy she faces as an Indigenous Australian. Sharing her story with her community has been part of the journey, and she hopes and encourages others to seek help earlier. I have a lot of people back home who get really inspired by what I do and how I post my hard days, my good days, you know, some days where I feel like I don't want to get out of bed. And I didn't realise I was doing that. That was just more so for me being accountable for what I was doing. But to be able to inspire other people was what really made it worthwhile because I just consider myself, you know, as a mum of three kids running a business, completely exhausted at some days. And then there's other times where I'm like, you know what, I actually smashed that and I need to be more proud of myself. Be Kwan, SBS News. 
Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Well, that's all for today. Bertrand Tungendaming, yeah. I am Bertrand Tungendami, thanking you for being with us this Monday afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu.